Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. I don't know about you, but sometimes this topic of human factors can be confusing. How does this relate to design controls and risk and all the other things that, that we're already doing? Is this yet another thing that has been created by regulatory agencies and standards organizations that is just making life more confusing for that device? Perhaps. But I mean, real encouraged because on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I have Bryant Foster, the VP of Human Factors from Research Collective. And he does an excellent job of bringing some clarity to this topic of human factors. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. Pretty excited about this one today, folks. Lovely topic of human factors has certainly come up so many times in the medical device industry, from FDA guidance documents to standards from IEC and so on and so forth. And yeah, it can create a lot of confusion. Well, good news. We have an expert on the call today, on the podcast today. And that expert is Brian Foster, and he's the VP of Human Factors at Research Collective. Brian, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be a part of it. I, I found this podcast earlier this year and have just loved listening to it and kind of rounding out my knowledge about the whole regulatory landscape. Uh, it's, it's been great. So I'm, I'm glad to kind of be a part of it now. Great. So Brian, what does a VP of human factors do? I guess I want to understand that a little bit before we dive too deep, but also tell us a little bit about Research Collective as well. Yeah. So primarily, you know, we do uh, human factors research and, and our main focus these days uh, is in the medical device uh, space. So we um, do, you know, a lot of usability studies, which which are kind of uh, the the thing that that are talked about a lot. And um, and I I want to kind of talk a little bit more about that and kind of how that differs from human factors or or how it fits into human factors. Um, but you know, so we do uh, the usability studies and then all sorts of other research um, involving. Uh, humans and uh, people using any type of technology. So um, it could be, you know, nurses or uh, people with um, different types of uh, conditions, and really trying to understand what it's like to to be them and um, kind of be as knowledgeable as we can uh, about you know their role and and what they're dealing with to to help inform the design of the products they're using. All right, and. Research Collective, as as a, a company, that this is your expertise. This is all that you do. It is. So we're all a bunch of uh, kind of psychology nerds, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. Um, we, you know, and so human factors people, we, we kind of come. Um, you know, I won't speak for for everyone, but but I'd say a lot of us come from kind of two different ways. We're either uh, kind of really interested in technology. Um, so a lot come from engineering or design, um, and then they get really excited about uh, humans and the brain. And so they they find that human factors kind of blends these two. 
um, or they're really into psychology, cognitive psychology, or, or even clinical. And then they find that, wow, it's interesting to see how people interact with all yeah. the new technologies that are coming out. And so uh, human factors is really kind of that, that blend of technology and, and psychology. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I guess I hadn't thought about it that way, but it totally makes sense. So let's let's dive into some of the nuances, if if that's okay with you. Let's let's start to to give uh, our listeners a few nuggets of information that they can take home uh, today and use uh, in their design and development efforts, manufacturing, whatever the case may be. But let's really start to understand, uh, you know, some of the differences between human factors versus design controls versus product development versus risk management and all those sorts of things where they are different, where they intersect and, and an overlap. So first thing that I'm, I'm a little bit curious about from your perspective is, you know, you talked about doing a lot of work uh, in the human factor space with the medical device industry. So there's, there's obviously some sort of relationship between human factors and design controls, but in your mind, how do you see these things being related or how should they be incorporated with one another? That's a, that's a great question. I actually, um, after I answer, I'd like to hear kind of what you think too. Um, okay. Maybe, maybe we <laughs> kind of look at it similarly. Okay. Um, but, but the, uh, you know, human factors um, really, uh, I, and as I'm listening to your podcast, I, I, I hear, um, you know, your conversation about, or a couple of conversations you've had about it and really uh, you know, it sounds like you see it, um, and a lot of people do, as just good design practice. Um, if you're making a product, it, it's uh, inevitable that someone is going to need to use that. And so, um, you know, whether it's a medical device or uh, an automobile, um, someone is going to have to interact with that, that product. And so in the medical device world, um, and it, with, you know, standard practices for documenting um, your design process, uh, human factors is really just a matter of showing um, that you are taking the user into account um, and hopefully doing that early on um, kind of through maybe some contextual uh, research where you're going and learning about where they work and, and what they have to work with, kind of the space limitations they have, um, you know, what are they good at, what do they have difficulties with, and then, um, you know, coming up with a product that, that meets what meets the needs that you've uncovered, um, and then getting to the usability testing where you're actually, um, you know, testing that product and making sure that it does what you've, you've intended it to do and that users can use it in the way you intend them to use it. Um, and so I think in terms of the, the design controls and things, it's just one part of it. It really, um, in fact, earlier this year, uh, Amy released a new document, um, a technical report, uh, number 59, and that uh, talks about um, how to incorporate human factors into design controls. And so I think to, uh, if anyone's interested in kind of learning more about that, that, that gives some really good um, specific instructions for where human factors fit in the design controls. Yeah, that's, that's a really great way to summarize that. And folks, I'll, um, I'll make sure that we provide a link to where you can learn more about the AAMI Technical Report 59. We'll, we'll um, provide a link to that so you can can review that. You know, again, uh, just it's it's always kind of great to tr try to get context and and more information and figure out how these things are related and how they flow with one another. Because I think the process is really really important. 
you know, I think sometimes when people think about this, Bryant, um, you know, I'll give you my perspective on this. Sometimes I think people think of design controls as this vacuum or this bucket, if you will. And then they think of things like risk management in this separate bucket. And they think of something like human factors and, and yet maybe a third bucket. But if that's your approach, folks, um, frankly, you're wrong. <laughs> um, you need to figure out how to how to incorporate these things because they're all related. They're all one flows to the other. And if if you heard what Brian just said, and let me put it in more of a design control view of the world rather than maybe a, a human factors view of the world, but user needs are so important to the design control process. Your intended use is so important to your product development efforts because these are things that you identify or what you say your product is going to do. And these are things that you capture uh, from what is important from the perspective of the, the clinician, the end user, the patient, all these sorts of things. And as you go through that entire design and development process and you start to define your inputs and your requirements and so on, you need to eventually demonstrate through things like design validation that the product does what you say is going to do. This is really the, the whole essence of design controls. And human factors is a huge part of that because, you know, the days are gone or they should be gone where we just slap some information in a user manual or instructions for use and think that we've addressed, quote, usability just because it's in the IFU. Uh, it's really about making sure that people who are going to use and interact your products, that they know how and what to do. I, I, I love hearing uh, your more global view of kind of, you know, with the design controls and, and the bigger process. I think, uh, you know, uh, as human factors people, we sometimes fall into the trap of just seeing our piece of it. And it, it really is a, a small piece. Um, but I think, as you mentioned, it's very intertwined in, in the big picture. And um, kind of an example of that would be something like uh, the risk assessment. You know, when it comes to human factors, if, if someone picks up the guidance uh, who's not too, the, the FDA human factors guidance, um, if they're not too familiar with human factors, it talks about task analysis. And so, you know, we're, uh, it seems like we're always having conversations about what is the task analysis? How does it differ from the risk assessment? Um, and, you know, where, how do they pair up? And, and so uh, really, as you mentioned, John, they're, they should work together. So the, the risk assessment is kind of more of an engineering document where you look at all of the potential hazards and, exactly. and bad things that could happen. And then the task analysis is what do people have to do with this thing? And then you find where those things meet up and you say, okay, um, if one of the things in the risk assessment is that the device gets water on it, and then one of our tasks is that people understand that they shouldn't put it in the water, then what is the potential hazard of that? And so they they really are kind of living documents that that should work hand in hand. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's just that's that's great, great way to think about it. So let's um, let's think of, you know, about uh, a medical device company or manufacturer, and they're already you know up to their eyeballs, so to speak, in their product development process. You know, maybe they're preparing for a five ten k submission, or getting ready to start some sort of clinicals or something like that. With one caveat, they haven't really done anything from a human factors standpoint, what should they be doing? How, how should they address that? I think to, 
it's really just to not wait any longer. <laughs> that, would, that would maybe be the, the first uh, recommendation. Um, and, uh, you know, I think uh, w- one of the things we do quite a bit is kind of a gap in uh, assessment um, specifically related to the human factors. And so, um, you know, someone uh, uh, like me could come in and give you an idea of, you know, what uh, kind of talk about what the end goal is and then decide, you know, where should we go in terms of getting ready? Um, but ultimately, what we want to get to is a, a product that can pass the validation human factors uh, or usability study that says everyone can use this device as it's, as it's intended. And so that usually doesn't happen on the first attempt. Uh, and so what can we do? Uh, maybe setting up some small studies where we start getting uh, some users in earlier in, in really small, what we call formative evaluations, um, where, you know, we're just getting it in front of people and, and really kind of learning, okay, where, where, what are we at now? What's our baseline? And then looking for ways to, um, you know, change either the interface of the device or, or if it is instructional materials, revising those, uh, hopefully way before the, the product is, is trying to um, be some, you know, submitted to uh, FDA or something like that, um, because by then it's, it's too late. Yeah. And I think, I think that's really important. I mean, I, um, sometimes I, I, Brian, I share some stories with folks on the podcast of, of things that happened early in my career where, you know, I probably didn't, I probably made some mistakes, you know, and we've all made mistakes um, and that's fine, but it's what we learn from those. And I remember one of the early mistakes that I made as a, a medical device product developer, and and here here it is in a, in a nutshell. Um, you know, I, I literally got a cocktail napkin sketch from from a physician once. I said, "Hey, I got this design, I got this idea, and and here it is." And, and you know, he sketched it out and handed it to me. He said, "Can you do this?" And of course, I'm an engineer, and a lot of engineers uh, believe that they can solve any problem. And I'm like, of course, I can sure. I can solve it. And so, <laughs> yeah, I I did some some uh, sketching, and I you know quickly tried to get hands on and build a prototypes and that sort of thing. And I iterated back and forth with this doctor, and we spoke, I guess, so to speak, through prototypes, you know. And at the you know we we got toward the tail end and I believe this this particular project resulted in a 510k submission and clearance and we went to market and let's just say it um, when we launched it in the market it 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 landed with a resounding thud you know uh, <laughs> um, and I'm scratching my head I'm like uh, what in the world I mean we spent so much time we iterated we re- and then I'm like there was a, this light bulb that went on I was like oh crap I I designed a product for one person, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I didn't consider the the you know the entire user base or enough of the user base uh, to incorporate you know what others might be using. I, I got data and input from one person, and and you know that's a big mistake. I didn't follow good human factors. Now did I? <laughs> yeah, and and I think that's uh, you know hopefully what we try to avoid and. Um, uh, another piece of advice, if, if a manufacturer is going out and, and trying to learn, you know, about their product. So if you, if we could go back to um, younger John and, and redo this whole thing, um, maybe uh, you would, you would bring in some representative users and, and let them use it. And then uh, you would follow uh, what we uh, lovingly call the shut up rule. 
um, which is just to let them use the device uh, as they see fit um, and then you know, learn as much as you can from them because uh, they truly are the experts in their field. Uh, and so even though they don't know your device, they're, uh, they're the most knowledgeable people about what they want that device to do, what they need it to do, what their patients need it to do. And, and so I think um, just getting it in front of them and shutting the mouth, uh, we can learn quite a bit from, from those users. I, I like that. The shut up rule, folks. I mean, it's, it's hard sometimes because as an, as a person who's passionate about what you do and, and, you know, maybe knowledgeable about design principles and things like that, sometimes we're very quick to want to provide solutions, but sometimes it's just best to just observe and listen and shut your mouth. Uh, so I like the shut up rule. Um, let's, you mentioned something a moment ago. Uh, you, you said the word formative, and and I know there's there's these different terms, and I'm going to confess I'm not, you know, 100% clear on these. But can you maybe take a few moments and talk a little bit about uh, the, the differences between formative versus validation versus summative usability studies? Absolutely, I do my favorite topics. So in so I'm actually going to back up just a little bit more even and talk about human factors and usability and even ergonomics. So um, on on one of your previous podcasts, you had talked about how they're kind of used interchangeably. And, and unfortunately for our industry, we have not done a very good job of uh, kind of defining these or, or kind of marketing ourselves. Uh, I think a lot of times people don't even know how to refer to what we do because uh, the, the, the different names. And so... Um, it, you know, kind of the way I see it, human factors is kind of the, the, the overarching practice. And it's where we, you know, apply knowledge of humans to the design of things. Um, ergonomics, uh, and this is different in the U.S. versus uh, Europe, so that makes it more difficult. But ergonomics tends to typically be, at least in the U.S., more related to physical products and physical um, design. So uh, things like posture and the way we interact with um, you know, our hands and, and things like that. So that's kind of more ergonomics. And then usability is simply a method uh, that is used within human factors to understand how people interact with a specific product or technology. Yeah. And usability testing. So we get it in front of them, have them use it, and then try to make it better. So okay. usability testing then has formative uh, tests or evaluations. And those are kind of what we do early on. So you might do that with a prototype. Um, it, it could be a very simple prototype. You know, maybe if you have a, a graphical user interface, um, you might put that on a tablet um, and, and just mock it up uh, really quick and have people uh, go through tasks with that and, and hopefully, you know, learn what their um, ideal model is for, for that interface. Um, and, and so really formative evaluations or formative tests are, are to learn. We're just, we're getting things out and trying to learn and iterate and make the product better each time. Um, at the end of a formative uh, or at the end of all the formatives and all the iteration, you get to um, a validation uh, usability test. And sometimes that is also called a summative. Um, and summative really means it's kind of like the culmination of all your formative studies. Um, and so FDA has kind of started using validation more, um, and but but really validation and summative are kind of used, uh, kind of interchanged. But um, in a validation or a summative, uh, we are not looking to 
learn anymore. We're looking truly to validate that the device can be used by those users in the uh, representative environment of use. And so in, in a study like that, um, we're just really setting, uh, you know, setting up a scenario and then asking them to, to use the product. Um, and hopefully, uh, if, if our design um, is what it, it should be, people can use it correctly and, um, and we were able to validate its design. That, that was a... The, the usability of its design, I should say. Yeah, that, that was just a really great way to explain that. So thank you for that. And, and folks, just to remind you, I'm talking to Bryant Foster from Research Collective today on the topic of human factors. Just to give you some perspective, you, you should go check out their website. Uh, the website is research-collective.com. You can learn a great deal about the organization. But Research Collective uh, does a great deal of work of hands-on experience, uh, specifically for medical device companies, their team of researchers are uh, master degrees, PhD degrees in human factors and cognitive science. They have significant experience with research, design, fielding, and advanced statistical analysis and reporting. Uh, their team, the team at Research Collective, uh, provides user research in the field, can do it online, in uh, their in-house usability labs. Uh, they also uh, do a lot of work with um, recruiting and research participant management. And they work with some of the most innovative medical device companies in the world. So you'll want to check out Research Collective. Uh, also of note, um, Research Collective will be doing a webinar on the topic of human factors in January 2018 uh, with Greenlight Guru. So we'll provide information about that as well. But, but do check them out. So, Brian, let's. And you talked a little bit about this a moment ago. Uh, it might be worth spending a, a moment or two going into a little bit more about this. But you talked a moment ago about uh, task analysis and risk assessment and all those sorts of things. But let's let's maybe spend a moment or two going into that. Uh, provide a little bit more explanation about that. What is a task analysis, and how does that link to the overall risk assessment? Sure. So the the task analysis. Um, is kind of a, a user-centered uh, approach to uh, to the design of the product. So what are all of the tasks that a user um, or, or multiple users would need to do in order to complete um, or, or, or use the device correctly? Um, so that would involve anything from uh, unboxing it, maybe you know, unpackaging, uh, setting it up, using the device, and then you know, any tasks they need to do, and and then ultimately maybe disposal or kind of uh, storing it. Uh, maybe there's reprocessing involved or cleaning. And so uh, all of the tasks that users need to complete um, should be accounted for. And so and what we do is we kind of document all of all of those tasks, and then we look into we we go deeper. And so simple tasks like um, if I can think of one uh, that that would be a good example, uh, maybe it's um, you know, turning the, the device on. So if there, you know, maybe there's a power button, you need to turn it on. Well, that seems like a really simple task, but maybe um, there there's some subtasks that people need to do in order to do that. So maybe they have to um, first pull it, you know, pull it out of the box. They might need to, um, you know, access the, the power button uh, and then actually press the power button. They have to know where the power button is. Um, they have to know that it has to be turned on and so there's uh, the elements within each subtask that we refer to as 
um, the PCA elements, which are the perception, cognition, and action elements of any task. Um, so like I was mentioning with the power button, you have to um, perceive the button, you have to see it, um, you have to you know, cognitively understand that that is the power button, and then you have to physically be able to um, press it or, uh, or turn it on. Um, and, and so it, it seems really overkill maybe on just as I'm talking about it, um, but when you look at a task in that way, and that's a really simple task, other tasks uh, you know, are obviously much more difficult. But when you break a task up like that into its uh, you know, perceptual and cognitive and action elements, um, you can then see when you watch people perform that task and say they have difficulty or they're unable to power on the device, you can then say, okay, why were they unable to power on the device? Was it that they didn't see the, the button there? Um, was it that they didn't know that that was the power button? Maybe the label <clears throat> on the button was uh, not something they were used to, and so they didn't know that was the power button. Or maybe they physically weren't able to do it. Maybe it was uh, kind of recessed in their finger. Uh, you know, they had a, a bigger finger than normal, and they couldn't get it inside to, to press the button. And and so then, as you know, researchers or human factors uh, scientists will look and say, okay, what is the root cause? of that error or, or difficulty? Um, was it one of those PCA elements, the perceptual cognitive action, and then link it back to the design? Um, and in that way, hopefully inform the design to be better. So maybe, you know, bring the button out so that everyone uh, with multiple or all finger sizes can actually press it um, or uh, change the label so that the uh, power symbol looks like what people would expect for a power symbol. Um, and ultimately uh, each of those tasks is has a hazard associated with it so if people don't need to don't know how to turn on the power button or aren't able to turn on the power button um, there's some associated hazard and that's where we pull in the elements of the risk assessment to say you know how critical is it that people are able to do this task um, so it's kind of a lot but um, no but a lot it makes yeah. it makes good sense because I mean I think sometimes people table their risk assessment activities. Um, again, I, I I think this is a, a conventional wisdom or a conventional approach that uh, that I think we as product developers need to change. Sometimes we ch we save that risk assessment for uh, a later stage activity, but that risk assessment needs to be. I mean, <laughs> Uh, um, and I, folks, I've written about this. I've probably, we've probably had a few other podcasts. We've probably done webinars on this topic, but risk assessment is so invaluable to what you're doing in the product development standpoint. It should be started early on in the product development process. Even if you don't have a prototype, but you know what you're trying to achieve, that risk assessment can add a lot of value. And as Brian has just described, it's very important as, you know, from a usability, from a human factor standpoint, so that, you know, it's it's um, you're basically addressing design features and and using that as a tool to mitigate those risks throughout the entire process. Yeah, and and we definitely, um, you know, the risk assessment is what we use to to then kind of fill out how important these different tasks are. And um, it's unfortunate how many times our task analysis will point out uh, things that should be in the risk assessment that aren't yeah. there. Um, and, and so, and, and I guess, you know, that is unfortunate, but it also uh, kind of, uh, I guess, um, backs up the claim that these things work together. So if you do a good task analysis, you'll be able to 
uh, make sure your you know your risk assessment is is complete and vice versa your you know mm. risk assessment can help your task analysis yeah and and i and I love that approach too because Sometimes I think when we do risk, uh, we're down in the weeds. I mean, we're we're at the the sub 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 component level. Sometimes looking at you know this 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 um, individual uh, item and what happens if that fails or does this or does that. But we need to, in my opinion, we need to bring this our risk assessments up to a, a much higher level. Uh, and think about how this product is being used. I, I love when you describe that. You know, when it, from the moment that the, the product arrives at, at point of use and it's taken out of the box, and this happens and that happens and so on. The other thing that that resonated with me as you were describing that is the person who is going to uh, use the device for the procedure or whatever it may be might be different than the person who receives the product and takes it out of the box. And so there's different users that we need to consider as part of human factors, depending on what the tasks are. Absolutely. And, and each of those users has um, a different mental model. So the, the person in receiving, you know, in the hospital um, has a different uh, kind of perspective than the uh, physician who's using it upstairs. Um, and then, even different from the person who's in the reprocessing department who's exactly. cleaning the device after it's used. And so making sure that um, those users are kind of thought of as the process that they need to complete is being designed is, is really important. Really good point. Really good point. So, so far, most of what we've talked about is is uh, human factors really in the the scope of design and development. but. And that's important. Don't mishear me. But there's also important aspects of human factors and and usability that should be considered once we go to market, once we launch. So talk a little bit about what we should be doing uh, with post-market, monitoring post-market usability. Yeah. And, and actually, I, I um, you had kind of made a point of this when I, I saw you earlier this year, and I, it, it's had me thinking about it ever since. So... Um, you know, a lot of our, uh, I mean, I guess not a lot of our clients, but but sometimes we hear people um, or, or manufacturers just just hoping to get through their uh, usability validation um, in, in what they're doing with us, but they really just want to get their device on the market. And then that means that everything will be okay from there. Um, but that's uh, obviously not necessarily true. And so, um, you know, the, the manufacturers are definitely... Um, you know, re- responsible for keeping an eye on all of the the post market kind of risks or or, or hazards that are happening, and uh, some of those will will link back to usability, and um, and so I think it's uh, just definitely a good idea to to keep that in mind, and um, if those things come up, uh, I would recommend getting out ahead of it and not wait until FDA recognizes it and asks. Um, you to do it or, or, you know, potentially pulls your device off the, off the market. Yeah. And it, and it lends itself very well that this mentality, this approach lends itself very well to the, the intent behind risk management. Risk management is intended to be a total product lifecycle process. So it doesn't stop once you launch, it continues on throughout uh, that entire product's lifecycle. Um, I also am a big advocate of uh, what I refer to as living design controls. I think sometimes we get um, uh, we, we have a, a 
preconceived misconception that, and part of it is we don't, the, the industry or the regulations don't do us any favors because they use terms like design history file. So that implies moment in time, something that we're going to archive. But I'm, I'm a big fan of living design controls. I mean, that your, your product, it will evolve uh, over time. And, and it also, uh, the other area where I think, um, you know, that, that uh, Greenlight is very focused on through our new grow product is this, um, this being able to manage and monitor quality events, but not just reacting to situations, waiting for things to happen. Uh, another way to thinking about it is sometimes we, we get stuck in a rut where we wait for something and then we correct it afterwards. Really what we're talking about here is being proactive uh, and, and preventive in nature so that you know, we can solicit feedback and information about our products and learn about what's working well, what's not working well, opportunities for improvement before they rear their ugly head and become real big problems. That's great. <clears throat> yeah, I think um, I, you know the the overall intent of these regulations, and this is uh, you know a theme I, I hear in your podcast, and I, and I really love it. But it's you know they're the they're the the, the base rule. You know the, the whole goal is to make products that are improving people's lives and whether that's, you know, through usability or, or, uh, or anything else, we're just trying to, you know, uh, ensure that what we're giving people is, is truly, um, you know, doing what it's supposed to do and, and, um, either, you know, making them better, healing them or, or helping them live a, a better life. And so, um, you know, once it's on the market, that's when we can really see if it's doing that and, and should keep an eye on that. Yeah, for sure. Well, Brian, we've we've covered a lot of ground on our conversation today on human factors. Any parting thoughts or words of wisdom before we wrap up today's podcast? Um, no, I I think uh, this has been great. I I've enjoyed talking to you, and I I like um, you know your perspective on this. Uh, it, it's kind of helpful in and in, in seeing kind of where we fit um, within the the larger process. So it's it's been a good conversation. All right. I want to thank my guest, Bryant Foster, the VP of Human Factors at Research Collective. Again, go check them out, research-collective.com. And uh, be on the lookout for that webinar that's coming up with Research Collective and Greenlight Guru in January. Let me tell you a little bit about how all this, uh, this topic of human factors, how it relates to Greenlight Guru and our exciting Go and Grow products that um, are helping medical device companies all over the world manage their quality management system, as well as get products to market faster and safer. Yes, we have workflows to help manage design controls and risk management. And as you've learned today from the information that Bryant has shared, those things, the human factors dovetails and, and really flows with a company's product development process and, and becomes critical information that that we as product developers absolutely should be on the quest to have and find and and know before we launch that product to market. And then with Greenlight's Grow product, uh, the workflows are there to help you stay ahead of things, uh, manage uh, information and events that you're learning about your products and processes so that you can always improve and make your products even safer and even better than they already are. If you want to learn more about the Greenlight Guru software platform for Go and Grow, I would encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru 
uh, click on the blue button, request more information, and someone from our team will be happy to share with you more about our software platform. Again, this is John Spear, the host, the founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Green Light Guru, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.